Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Uh, Bud, we have not been short on content over the summer, and uh, the that fact remains very true. Got a lot of different commitments, uh, both traditional and perhaps non, uh, to cover. Uh, this should be a fun podcast with a pretty considerable amount of good news attached to it, which is uh, always better than the alternative. For us, we want to thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana, at the top of every podcast as they have been with us since day one, continue to make the Nolcast a possibility. Louisiana hot sauce, three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, the title sponsor of the Nolcast, and uh, a tip of the hat to our friends, and a thank you to them as they uh, go a long way in making the Nolcast possible. Absolutely. Great sponsor for us and, and, and some loyal friends of ours over there. Uh, and a lot of good news tonight. And I guess we'll start here with uh, Fabian Lovett, defensive tackle Fabian Lovett who we thought was going to Ole Miss. I guarantee you Florida State staff thought was going to go to Ole Miss. He's not going to Ole Miss. He's transferred to Florida State. This is the kid who initially announced he was transferring to FSU and then decided he was not going to uh, uh, transfer to Florida State maybe and, and took all the stuff off his profile and, and had the staff pretty worried. And The Mississippi people were, were getting very good word that he was going to come to Ole Miss. And then uh, something happened. I don't really know exactly what. I'm not going to go into detail on that because I don't know exactly what, but uh, if you want, if it's out there if you want to read about it, I guess, if you want to believe it. But it looks like Florida State, uh, I don't know if they're the beneficiary of an Ole Miss screw-up or, or uh, if they just did a tremendous job recruiting him with, with Odell Higgins, but this is a, a player who uh, I think we rated at like a 90 or a 91 in our transfer portal re- re-ratings, which makes him uh, one of the top players in the transfer portal, uh, again, Fabian Lovett, defensive, defensive tackle, uh, who actually got some playing time as a redshirt freshman and, and already had a pretty high star rating coming out of high school. Looks like a guy who could be a very important piece for Florida State. Maybe not so much in 2020, although I won't write it off, but Ingram, uh, with, with, the, with the strong possibility that Marvin Wilson leaves and the strong possibility that you know, Corey Durden uh, is gone. Obviously, Marvin Wilson's not a possibility to leave. He's, he's going to leave. Uh, but like with, with Wilson and Durden and, and maybe even Cooper uh, going pro after this season, uh, Lovett could be in line to really help them quite a bit. It's a real big get. I mean, we didn't, we kind of put our head in the sand a little bit on the topic of him leaving, but we didn't sugarcoat it that it was a significant loss if you ultimately didn't get him. Uh, it's a big piece, both in the fact that you're adding to the roster. And I also think it's a, it's a big piece for the general fan base to see some level of success in the transfer portal, which for the most part you haven't had. Uh, and so to get a kid who you're right, you know, you and I are sitting here watching uh, an outside linebackers tape and, and evaluating high school prospects. But to get a kid that you can pop on tape, watch him perform against SEC level offensive linemen and win a decent amount of battles is a real big deal. And uh, you're right, you know, in recruiting, it doesn't really matter how you get there. Uh, it's the end result. And, and this one, uh, Florida State, you know, it's like one of the uh, – one of the commitments that happens on our this is more frequently on the traditional signing day where you'd have everybody up into the coach's room and the cameras would come in. Florida State wouldn't have had the media in on this decision, if you know what I mean. No, no, they didn't expect to win it until at the absolute very end. And uh, this was a pleasant surprise for everybody involved and a nice shot in the arm for the fan base that needed one overall, but particularly needed one when it comes to topics involving the transfer portal. I, I think it's an interesting topic too, because I, I feel like, most fans have no idea who Fabian Lovett is and don't follow the transfer portal day to day. But I think for your diehards, right, your, your people who are listening to the Noel Cash, your, your people who are on the message boards, 
I think those fans absolutely need a shot in the arm because really the guys at Florida State got in the transfer portal, you know, for the most part, are, are guys who other big time schools really didn't want that bad. And some in some cases, guys who like other power five schools didn't really want that much. And so th- this is a, a nice win that they go out and, and they get a bit of a premium prospect there in Fabian Lovett. And you know what, man? They, they might not be done. They, they're, they're still in it for a, a defensive back prospect. I know, I know they're someone involved with in Jerry and Jones. Jerry and Jones, defensive back, also transferring from Mississippi State. Uh, it looks like for all the world, uh, did he officially announce he was going to Ole Miss? Or he, he put it on social, uh, the you know traditional, like the Clarion Ledger, traditional newspapers reported on it. It was, a, it was over by all accounts. Um, so, you know, whatever turn of events happened, um, it, you know, both of them were out apartment shopping, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Jones, Jones has since deleted said social media post and, uh, and very much appears to be in play. Uh, not, we're not, we're not quote unquote reporting. He's going to Florida state or anything else saying that, uh, the idea of Mississippi state prospects in Florida state, uh, or former Mississippi state prospects in Florida state is not totally dead. And, uh, uh, wild rumors out there, but uh, if, if there's any buzz about Charles Cross and any any legitimacy to those rumors, that would be the uh, the cherry of all cherry on tops. But that's uh, just kind of fanciful wishing at this point, uh, by all accounts. But yeah, Jaron Jones is a is a name to write down if you're interested in such things. And um, you know, I, I think you make a good point about the the hardcore wanting to win. I, I only go off the the anecdotal evidence that I see and. Uh, you know, group texts that I'm in and things like that. And and I do think that a decent amount of the fan base, you're right, the ones that follow it the most closely, but a decent amount of the fan base was was just looking for a win in general on the transfer portal. Uh, and, and to get the love it thing is a, is a big deal, both uh, for morale and the actual uh, prospect that you're adding to the roster. I, I completely agree with you. Do, do you think the uh, the tamper resistance seal might have been broken there on, on, those, uh, on those transfers perhaps? I, I don't know. I'm trying trying to spin a pun here. That's that's kind of lame. Um, look, Jerry and Jones may be able to help you as well as a prospect. Florida State will lose a decent bit of its secondary after this year. If this is a kid that Florida State staff likes and, and wants to use the scholarship spot on, I I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. I don't know if he's somebody you like you have to go out and get, but he was a pretty good prospect, right? And and certainly is a higher level prospect as a recruit than some of the guys. Uh, Florida State is is recruiting right now, and he also got to play a little bit for Mississippi State as a freshman, and uh, so that that would be a potential shot in the arm there for the Knowles. I I haven't heard anything about the Charles Cross stuff at all. I, I don't really know where that's coming from. I, I guess they like notice message board rumors at this point. So I, yeah, I, I don't want to can't write it off. Wanna, yeah, I don't want to pump people with uh, with optimism, and I'm not saying anything other than that would be about the greatest thing that ever happened. So uh, you know, uh, just something to something to be have wishful thinking attached to at this point. You know, one of the greatest things that ever happened to the Tallahassee dining scene is Madison Social. Man. Madison has been a longtime sponsor of ours, and, and uh, we, we really appreciate everybody supporting them throughout the whole COVID-19 thing. And, and now that they're, they're back and open for business, really encourage you all to go and, and, uh, and support them in whichever way you, you feel comfortable, whether that's takeout, whether that's sitting outside, whether that's doing you know, some of the, the limited socially distanced uh, seating indoors. Madso is back and open for business and, and we really encourage y'all to go check them out. We know many of y'all have and, and especially those of y'all in Tallahassee. We very much appreciate it. If you're not in Tallahassee, if you want to help support the sponsors of the show, 
Uh, in, in addition to obviously liking them on social media and following them, you can buy shirts from them, gear, koozies, et cetera. They pretty much have it all. And they've been a great supporter of ours. Absolutely. Great people. Uh, by no means are, are their challenges over with. Uh, if you can give them support, we would certainly encourage it and, and appreciate it. Um, in any way possible. So uh, another commitment that Florida State picked up, actually, Bud, real quickly, uh, before we go away from this, there's there's times on this podcast where I ask you questions, kind of more of just a leading way of getting to topics and providing a better general knowledge to, to our listener base. There's times where I ask you questions and I legitimately don't know the answer to and, and I'm curious. Uh, when, when we see it reported that Fabian Lovett has signed with Florida State as a transfer, what exactly does that mean? And and obviously there's an assumption there, I think correctly so, that there's a little bit of more of a binding relationship that exists between the two parties than previous. So I believe that would basically mean if you're a transfer kid that you are signing your scholarship papers in order to enroll in the summer semester, right? Whether that's, what are they in summer B now? Or is it summer C? I'm trying to, I, I think it's B. That that's That's my understanding of it, right? Because remember we talked about like, there's really nothing binding that like you're not going to sign like a like a letter of intent. You, you you might sign scholarship financial aid papers, and then you have to actually you know enroll. And whether that's enrolling in person or you know now enrolling is kind of weird, right? For instance, I, I give you an example here: five star running back Zach Evans, the the, the the you know the kid out of Houston who I guess a lot of people thought was going to go to Florida. Uh, but before that, he signed with Georgia, and they let him out of his letter of intent. Blah blah blah. Well, he obviously because he had signed a letter of intent, he could not sign another one. And so he was going to enroll at a campus uh, simply by enrolling. And that, that's, that's how he would basically say, hey, I'm at a campus now. But the thing here is, how do you enroll in a socially distance period where nobody's on campus? And so Evans enrolled in TCU by taking a online class via laptop. And that was done, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm enrolled at TCU now. Uh, but reports are, are that Lovett is now in Tallahassee. So it seems, uh, seems very, very real in, in addition to signing the papers. All right. So uh, back to the prospect we were about to talk about. That is one Jordan Eubanks, a linebacker commitment from Denton, Texas. Uh, Geyer High there. Uh, Eubanks committed a couple of days ago, a continuation of a positive stretch that Florida State's had on the recruiting trail uh, that we'll continue to talk about. But um, nice prospect. I'm not going to blow smoke up our listeners, uh, you know, rears. It's uh, not exactly the most impressive offer list as to who Florida State beat out. He has nice tape, doesn't necessarily blow you away, but it's a it's a good prospect who plays at a high level of ball. Uh, looks a little bit of a, I don't want to say a safety hybrid, but looks like a, a linebacker that'll give you a strong support in the pass game immediately and may have to grow into run support when I, when I just initially look at his tape. Absolutely right. So I think the first thing you have to look for here when you're looking at, at Eubanks is his tape is not going to blow you away, right? Like there are some good plays on the tape. There's a lot of just sort of, you know, pretty good plays and, and, and solid plays on the tape. He shows a you know, pretty good level of athleticism, not, not a freakish level. It doesn't look like. You do have to realize that he is playing against some of the best high school ball in the country. I mean, Geyer plays in one of the highest classifications in Texas. If you pull up his huddle film, I mean, he's literally, he's playing games there in the dome. Right. So like he's playing in the dome and if you're playing in the dome, that means you've made it to the state finals in Texas. And he's not going to have 150 tackles because there's a lot of other good guys on his team who are getting recruited. I think he had 60 something tackles 
couple sacks, couple couple picks. He, he looks like he's a nice player. Um, he to me is does he does his film look like somebody who's a big time difference maker? Not necessarily, uh, but I, I know we recently got done with our grades at at twenty four seven Sports, right? And like we we actually did a defensive uh, dot like deep dive and. We put an 87 on him and made him the, the 41st outside backer in the nation. Uh, that That's a decent bit higher than his composite rating, which I think is like 59th outside linebacker. So we're, we're 41st at, here at 24 seven. And, you know, the other, like the other websites seem to be, you know, not nearly uh, as, as high on him. Of course, I mean, I don't know necessarily what they're doing, right? I guess we'll see if they get around to, to putting more ratings out or, or you know, what have you. I think he's probably a, like a, a tweener guy, a guy who can, who can play like a nickel linebacker spot. I know Gabe Brooks, my, my colleague at 24-7, had him at 6'2", 192 at a camp in January. I, I think it's possible that he put on some weight since then. Probably not a ton. I don't, I don't believe the whole like 215 reports that some people were saying on Twitter. I just, you don't go from 192 to 215 in, in, in six months. That, that doesn't really happen. Uh, but look, like honestly, man, we're looking at a lot of these guys getting drafted, and a lot of them away in that sort of 190 range at the linebacker position coming out of high school. Now, the thing is, they they look more athletic than Eubanks does. The, the ones who go real high, they're like super athletic, but a little bit skinny, and then you you put weight on them. I, I don't, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass here and say that he he projects as a you know first round pick or anything like that. But I think he's he's a decent addition to the class, not not a special addition. Um, and just sort of kind of middle of the road guy. Are there better players in Florida you could have got? Probably, but you don't know those kids. They don't have a relationship with you. Not, not a real relationship, not, not something where you've met the person in person and anger. I mean, look, this guy can, let's see, he rushed the pass for some. He certainly has a decent number of clips and coverage. He, he can tackle. Uh, he's not, he's not really much of a hitter, at least from not like if he is, those are not clips that he chose to put on his highlight. But this seems to me like more of Florida State, like Mike Norvell's continued pattern. We're not going to take you if you haven't visited or if we don't have an actual like prior relationship with you. And of course, a lot of Florida State staff has recruited the Texas area in previous years. So that it, it seems like, like they most likely know him uh, from, from previous staff relationships. Yeah. So uh, a nice pickup, something that, uh, you know, we'll continue to look at. I imagine is if you care about ratings, he'll he'll get a higher rating as the process goes through. Simply as other people start to update their ratings, and let's be honest, a commitment to Florida State more times than not has a has a positive impact. Uh, at least traditionally has on uh, on where a kid falls in in some of these ratings, depending on the service you look at. On our previous podcast, uh, we talked about two different prospects that we expected. I don't know, imminent commitments, but something in the future. Uh, Joshua Burrell committed, by the way, we're not acting like we had inside knowledge there. That was, it was kind of a, a well-known thing. But Joshua Burrell, a big kind of uh, physical wide receiver out of South Carolina, makes an official commitment a couple days ago. <clears throat> Again, we'll give a, you know 90 seconds or so to recap his skill set, what you can expect from him. Uh, but it's a, a guy that you, you didn't beat Clemson. Uh, or South Carolina for, because I don't know that either of those two necessarily participated in this, his commitment, but uh, a nice pickup. And again, a, a prospect that the coaching staff had a, uh, a pre-existing relationship with and, and was very familiar with. Yeah. So with, with Josh Burrell, let's just get into this real fast. 
his rating has been steadily dropping as other kids have emerged. I, I don't think that's necessarily that, that the rating services don't like him. I think they do like him. Uh, and I know Steve Wolfong, my colleague, like, likes him you know, a whole lot. But he's rated, what, an 87 bias, I think? And the main, the main question there is going to be speed. I, I know some staffs who, who are recruiting him. Uh, some t- tell me that he's actually much faster than we think he is. Uh, I don't buy that. Some tell me that uh, they don't really care about the speed aspect that, that much because it's not like he's using speed to win in high school and then is going to have to convert doing something different in college. Uh, he, he's a guy who's pretty strong. He looks pretty maxed out to me physically when you look at him. Like I, I know some people on the Knowles 24 7 message board were saying they, th- they think he'll get up to 235 pounds. And I'm like, I, I, like, like Chase Claypool did at, at Notre Dame. And I was like, well, Chase Claypool was like six four and a half. and a half. This kid's like almost six two. He's 208. He looks pretty college ready physically. He has strong hands. He has confidence going up and get the football. I think he can act like one area where I think he actually can improve is as a route runner. He's not going to run by you. He's probably not going to be a first round type pick given the, you know, the speed and athleticism profile, but he's a guy, another high floor guy. It's hard to see him being a total bust because high character kid, at least from what I've been told, you know, Good, good kid in the classroom. And I mean, these are not really qualities you want to be listening off on a podcast, but from a playmaker standpoint, he comes down with the football really well. He, he seems to win those 50 50 balls a lot more than 50% of the time. He has some toughness about him. He can take a hit. And I, I, you always want to make sure, like, okay, will the kid, will the reasons why the kid works in high school, will those translate over to college? You know, and it's like, hey, is he going to get caught from behind in college? Yeah. Probably a little bit more than he does in high school. Is 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 he getting open due to speed in, in high school that won't translate to college? I don't really think so. No, I, I, and in fact, I I may be a little bit higher on Josh than, than some of the rating services are. Uh, not a ton higher. I, I don't think he has to be a four star anything like that. But I think a high three star makes some sense for a kid with with his athletic profile. Another prospect that we talked about is Jackson West. Jackson West is set to commit uh, tomorrow, uh, actually the day that we will uh, publish this podcast, June 1. So uh, a prospect, again, uh, we spent maybe three or four minutes commenting on in the previous podcast. Decent-looking prospect as a overall evaluation, uh, a kid who certainly is highly uh, acclaimed when it comes to intangibles, locker room presence, uh, very highly considered uh, both on and off the field in somebody that I think both of us expect to join Florida State's uh, recruiting class in the, in the very near future. Yeah, so again, another, another high-character kid who they feel like really knows how to play the game of football. Um, upside on him, I, I think it's somewhat unknown. I, I have a little hard time like, getting a feel for, for what his athleticism is like. My kind of perspective on Jackson West, that if he's the top tight end you take in your class, I think you're kind of disappointed. But I fully expect Florida State to take two tight ends, and if he's the number two tight end you take in your class, I think you're pretty happy. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that Florida State doesn't really like what it has on its roster right now as far as tight ends, and feels the need to go out and throw some numbers at this position. Just just call that uh, informed speculation on my part. Jackson West, kid out of Alabama, uh, we do expect to commit to Florida State on the first. Again, has some toughness to his game. Seems like he knows what he's doing. He's not super raw, and he's kind of a floor guy in some ways. And I know we have a question later in the show about floor uh, prospects. So we'll have to, we'll have to talk about that a little more, but I think he's a guy who can also help your locker room. 
All right, Ingram. Uh, well, just got back from the post office recently from sending out seven new shirts. Oh, no, eight. Sorry, eight new shirts to NOLCAST listeners who used Resolution Home Loans and Shannon Young to do their home loan or their refi. Really excited to continue working with, with, with Shannon. Just, just an awesome dude. Always takes care of our listeners. 844-FSU-LOAN. When you call 844-FSU-LOAN, talk a little ball, talk a little loan, talk a little refi, and then see if you can get the best possible rate. More than 50 NOLCAST listeners have used Shannon Young for their home loan. You can too, 844-FSU-LOAN. All right. So our first listener question comes from Scott. Uh, this is a pretty interesting question that uh, Bud and I both have talked about off air and we'll now address on. Scott writes, I have a general question about being all in. If I were a rich person, say maybe a UF alum, and I knew my rival, Florida State, had a massive hole on their team, perhaps offensive tackle. I could look at every good offensive tackle Florida State was going after and help the other team in that player's top three secure their target. Here's a cost-benefit analysis. Say the OT wanted to go to FSU or Auburn. UF doesn't play Auburn. Some of UF's uh, in-conference play Auburn. So I guess if I help toss an extra bag so that the OT goes to Auburn, it's a win-win for me. My rival, FSU, loses an important need, and my opponent's have to face a strengthened Auburn offensive line. Now, say helping a player I go somewhere else cost me 10% of what it would cost to secure a player to my school. I could, in theory, prevent 10 offensive tackles uh, or insert other position here from going to FSU, a clear win over securing one player. Does stuff like this happen? Honestly, if I was a UF alum and I had a Clemson alum friend, I'd work in tandem to make sure the O-line would always be a dumpster fire, would always be a dumpster fire. With three schools working together, UF, Clemson, players, uh, other top two schools, you could continually weaken a team to the point where it could just never really recover. I mean, okay, there's a lot going on here, and we really appreciate Scott's question. Does this, so I think his actual, he has several questions. Like, he's like, what is to prevent this? And he also asked, does stuff like this happen? I'm going to take the the second part first. Does stuff like this happen? Kind of, right? So for instance, if you have a kid committed to your school and you get word that he wants to take visits to another school, yes, you will oftentimes grease him with some cash or his high school coach or his handler or all three or the parent or whomever with basically some incentive to to stay committed and and not take that visit, right? There's a reason a lot of these kids are like, oh, I'm going to take all, all five visits and no, I'm committed. I'm still going to take these visits. Sometimes it's due to like a genuine interest in finding out about these schools. Other times it's to send a message through the media to the coaching staff. Hey, you better pay up, right? I mean, there's been interviews before with kids like, nah, I don't really want to see other schools. And his handler is like listening over my shoulder in the media and he's like, you know, to, to the interview and he's like, hey, no, we're, we're, we're definitely taking those visits. It's pretty obvious, right? Like this, this stuff goes on for sure. Now, does the stuff to where, like, for instance, rival state U booster pays this kid to go to not Florida State instead go to Auburn? Does that stuff happen? I, I really don't think it's that deep, guys. Um, for the most part, people who have enough disposable income to think about doing this would not think about doing this because they're busy, right? It takes a lot of work to, to, be, to be that rich, typically. And like, they're just not that interested in doing stuff like this. It's it's very fun to hypothetically spend other people's money uh, in this fashion, but I've just never heard of of this happening. Right? Like, I just I don't think it happens. Yeah. Have you? 
I don't know that I've ever heard of a situation quite like that. If it were to happen, I'd probably look in the state of Mississippi for it to happen, to be honest with you. Every time Bud and I talk about this, I think it's worth reminding yourself that we're basically talking about creative forms of money laundering and tax evasion. Uh, And the juice has to be worth the squeeze when you go about doing this. And so um, I think you make a good point. If you're super rich and, and successful, you want to make sure that you know your state. You is uh, is has all the opportunities and and uh, chances it has to win. You also don't want to give yourself uh, unnecessary exposure to an area that could ultimately backfire on you. So um, it's an interesting question, Scott. I don't know that I've ever heard anything quite like that, um, but it is a, a very complicated world out there. And you know, maybe in ten years, if we were to revisit this, we would we would see something similar to it. But that, uh, that's a, a little bit further than, than that of which I'm familiar with. And in 10 years, we might have name, name image and likeness like officially done done. And so we might not have to be like creatively laundering this money, right? It might just have to like, maybe the kids who have true value um, will get their money and the kids who really don't have that much value, which is actually the, the majority of them uh, who play college football, will just get the value of an education. And maybe we'll be able to save college football system like that because kids, you know, like the real, real stars are getting something and, uh, and the kids who are just sort of along for the ride get their scholarship. All right. So it's really important to know your numbers, like we were just talking about there. And one number you absolutely should know is the number for Travis Johnson, 850-435-9919. Travis is a board certified family law attorney with more than a decade of experience helping people in the state of Florida with complex family law matters. Travis is a big-time Noel fan. He plays in our Fantasy Baseball League as well. That's not why you should retain him to be your family law attorney. You should do it because, again, board-certified family law attorney with more than a decade of experience of the Metter and Johnson law firm. Travis has cases throughout the state. And he wants to remind you here, in this tough economic times that we're going through with COVID and, and, and all the quarantine and whatnot, um, if you have a, a child support or an alimony obligation, it's really important that you know if you lose your job or if your pay has changed, you need to seek a court-ordered modification of that alimony or child support payment as soon as possible because any reduction can only be made retroactive to the time of the filing and not to the time of the change in your income. So even if you only expect a short-term loss of income, Travis can help you. Again, take this number down. You may not need it today, but if something happens to you, you want to have a bulldog on your side, 850-435-9919. Travis is offering free consult and flexible payment rates for NOLCAST listeners, 850-435-9919, cases throughout the state, he'll come to you. Second question comes from uh, Dane, and this is an interesting question. We kind of covered it a little bit in, uh, in the topic of the, uh, uh, the recent commitment of Eubanks, but uh, Dane asks, recent lower tier out-of-state uh, commitments, is this something that the staff really wants, or is it easier uh, for them to perhaps face a decommitment from an out-of-state prospect rather than having to deal uh, with the complicated nature of coaches and in-state decommitments. So uh, something that we talked about last podcast about how, you know, the easiest way to burn bridges in-state is to go and have to talk to coaches, handlers, kids, whoever it may be, uh, where you have to kind of separate yourself from a commitment. Um, so Dana, I think this is a pretty interesting one. This is a really good question from Dane. and so. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they don't want these kids. I think they certainly do want them. However, we know the staff 
is conscious of not like pissing off the, the high school coaches in the state of Florida with whom it really doesn't have much relationship in many cases yet. They also don't have very many like true relationships yet with a lot of the kids in Florida. And so they are having to look outside of Florida, I think much more than they would have, have, have preferred to do if COVID had not happened, right? You, you, you can't tell me with a straight face that they wanted to take this many out-of-state kids if they had a real opportunity to have spring of period and have all these junior days and visits and have kids come on campus and, and have summer camps. It's like, I, I, I just, I don't buy it. I don't believe that. I think they're trying to make the best of a very difficult situation. I think this is a true year zero spot for, for Coach Mike Norvell and really all the coaches out there. And they're relying on the states and the players who they already had prior relationships with for the most part, uh, at least as of right now, at their prior coaching spots, right? I mean, Chris Thompson coached in Texas. A lot of these guys are actually from the state of Texas originally and have recruited Texas. You know, we, we see them going to Alabama. We see them going to South Carolina. Coach, At- Coach Atkins coached in the Carolinas. We, we, we know that Coach Dillingham was already looking at Burrell when he was coaching at Auburn. There's pretty e- like easily identifiable lines here. And, and we know that Florida State has turned down a lot of kids with whom that they don't really have relationships with yet. And they don't feel like they want to take them, you know, to, I won't say a lot of kids, at least a couple. I, I, I think the official line is five, but I know of at least a couple. They don't want to take commits from kids who they might later decide they don't want, especially not in-state kids. And I think that's what this question is getting at, right? I mean, it was a long preamble for me, but there's no doubt it's easier to cut ties with the kid who's at an out-of-state program who you might recruit once every three or four years. I mean, I don't mean out-of-state like up in Georgia. I mean, like, out-of-state Texas, you know, South Carolina schools, you're not going to recruit that often. There's no doubt it's easier to do that there than it is to go down and take a kid from Miami Northwestern and all of a sudden cut him loose. It's a big difference. I think we will see a purposeful increase in recruiting in the state uh, if and when all these recruiting restrictions are, are lifted. So Dave asked a question that we previously alluded to. Uh, again, another really good one. Uh, we've been wildly fortunate by the content that our Patreon uh, subscribers have, have given us. And tonight is maybe the highest bar possible. Uh, we'll remind you if you have an interest in supporting the Nolcast, uh, patreon.com backslash Nolcast uh, is where we take the majority of our questions, although we also grabbed a couple ones from email tonight. And I believe Dave uh, was an email one. Dave asked, is there a scouting metric that is used to measure the floor of a player? It seems that FSU has shifted to focusing on the floor after having the ceiling fall in on them with top blue chip prospects. Is there a danger that the whole house falls apart on us and we're going to need a resolution home loan or another new head coach? Is this the best backdoor money ball strategy to get us back in contention? Dave, we certainly appreciate the question there. Uh, it's an old cast at gmail.com. Again, I, I think this is just a reactionary strategy to the completely unforeseen event that is a national pandemic and subsequent quarantine. Right, like this is this was not their plan to go out and get a bunch of high floor guys w- w- with whom they had some certainty could play. Definitely not. Florida State already has a decent number of floor players on its roster. I think their plan was to go out and see if they could compete for some top prospects and and, and fill the you know, fill the roster with others. And like they just don't have relationships with these guys, especially not these guys they might be able to sign within the state. And that's really kind of the bottom line. Like if you don't have the relationships, you don't have the relationships. Uh, this is not a, well, I guess we'll ask the first question first. Um, 
or, or his second question first is, is, is the, uh, is the house going to fall in basically and we'll need a new coach? I, no, I, I don't think so. Not, not as long as you really think about this as, as a year zero situation and you give the guy at least four or five years. I mean, that's when I mean four or five years, I mean like four or five actual years. This is a year zero. I'm not expecting to get anything done this year, really, uh, from, from that standpoint. So, you know, I mean, if you treat this as a year zero and you're confident in giving the guy like four actual years, then I think, you know, you can, you can take a look at what he's done in, in that five-year window. But no, getting the, getting the level of prospects Florida State is getting right now is not going to get them back on the road to contention. Now, I think they're plugging some important holes on the roster. I think that it helps secure some type of floor. But like, if you meet, if the question is asking, like, is this going to help you beat Florida and Clemson and Miami? No, like, just I, I can be straight up with you, it's not. I mean, the, their their average recruit rating right now is is an eighty eight point six two. I mean, they, you know, they have three four stars and and six three stars. Ultimately, like, that's just not really gonna gonna get it done if if you're trying to to get back on top. If you don't grade it on a curve. You're an idiot. And I don't want to call our listeners idiots, but like re- you have to grade this on, on a pretty severe curve, man. You, I mean, don't you agree? Like this is kind of one of those, how do you not grade it on a curve? You, we're, we're in a pandemic and you, your staff largely doesn't have very many Florida ties and doesn't have a lot of relationships within this state. I think they're doing the best they can, but right now, like they're just, they don't have a lot of, pro- lo- lot of traction with quality prospects. It's, uh, it's a tough situation. I mean, I, obviously, to predict the future is impossible. Uh, I can tell you that pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, I was exceptionally bullish on what this recruiting class was going to look like, probably more so than you were. Uh, and I think Florida State had some some very positive initial feedback from prospects. Now, does that mean they were going to sign them? No. Does it mean that they were going to be in the game with them a hell of a lot more than maybe they have been? Absolutely. There was a time where I thought Florida State was going to sign a top eight recruiting class. I don't think that's possible at this point. It's not totally removed but it's going to be a hell of a challenge. I think everything kind of has to be processed through this filter. I'm not knocking Dave. Uh, the question was brilliant, but like the talk about the, the whole class falling in, how we're, we're not, but like four months into the schedule here. <laughs> I mean, uh, nothing's going to fall in. And, and by all accounts, he's, he's had a very strong start, uh, both on the recruiting trail and both uh, with what he's done in the locker room. So uh, give it time. I think it's going to be a good class. I don't know that it'll maybe be the great class that I thought it was going to be. Uh, but you got to treat it as a year zero. I completely agree with you there. And, uh, and we'll you know, continue to evaluate and try to bring you the most honest assessment of a really challenging recruiting class for, for Coach Norville and the broader staff. So this question comes from, from Brian. Uh, and, Brian, and Brian, we think this is a little bit dated, and that's our bad, but you did ask it, so we wanted to tackle it anyway. So I think we're going to tackle it kind of as, as like a hypothetical, right? Like, what if we have a pandemic next year or something? So we'll go ahead and take, you know, kind of take it from that perspective. And Brian says, with regards to rosters, uh, I've been wondering what a football season without all the FBS teams participating would look like. How do you think that would, that would impact upperclassmen at schools who choose not to play football during the fall semester? Would there be enough time for seniors to go uh, to new schools as a grad transfer? How do you think uh, there would be any high school play, high pro, any high profile players go to a new school just for the chance to play one more time before, before their eligibility is up? Maybe an offensive tackle? Ha ha. 
Inter- interesting hypothetical there. Well, interesting. And and I don't mean to interrupt you. I'll certainly let you answer the question as I will too. But let's treat this like Michigan. We, we talked about on the last podcast that Michigan's president, who is a former epidemiologist, whether you care about that or not, but uh, he talked about the fact that if students weren't there, Michigan wouldn't be played football. So let's assume the rest of the Big Ten goes on and Michigan, for this hypothetical, chooses to sit out the season. Um, what are the impacts on their roster and, and how does that play out from there? Yeah, so this is interesting. I I think that they actually probably would get a waiver from the NCAA. I'm trying to remember. Do you remember? I think the the most similar scenario would actually be UAB. Mm-hmm. Right? When, yeah. when UAB decided to shutter football, their guys were able to transfer and be immediately eligible, I think. Right? I'm trying to, trying to recall here, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. If you are on scholarship somewhere and your school says, we're not going to play, I think that you're probably allowed to transfer and you would have to get a waiver unless the NCAA made some kind of blanket rule. But I, I think about this, PR-wise, with everything that's gone on in this country over the last like, like, like decade or so, and some of the shifts here to where it's just not a great position to be like, hey, student athlete, uh, you're, you're not allowed to do this, this, and this. Can you imagine them saying, Hey, you're not allowed to transfer because well, you have to stay at the school that's not allowing you to play football because of COVID. The other other thing we can we can talk about here, if you want, the other scenario is Penn State. With remember when all, all the Joe Pond Sandusky stuff went down, you had college coaches like camping out in Penn State's uh, parking lot mm-hmm. by their, by their facility because their their kids were going to be immediately eligible if their college career was set to end before Penn State got off its bowl ban. We were at ACC Media Days when that happened. Yep. Uh, you remember Jimbo actually walked out of out of the media room to, I'm pretty sure, go talk to that tight end. But that was that was a surreal moment in general. And that Media Days was a was one to remember for uh, numerous reasons. But that was uh, that was wild. I mean, that that was like a a free market had opened all of a sudden, and. Uh, I think it was Happily uh, and maybe one other prospect at Penn State at the time that they were pursuing that they didn't ultimately get. But yeah, that was a that was a wild time and a, and a good point of reference and comparison. I, I agree. So I I think they'd make them eligible, man. Um, probably right. Like I I would have to think so. Now, would there be enough time for seniors to go to new schools as a grad transfer? That's the other part of his question. That would just all really depend on you would have to basically find a school that hasn't been having classes for too long yet, essentially. Um, Cause like if, if the kid, there is a situation I think where you could be in classes for the fall semester and end up getting trapped basically. Um, and, and ha- having to stick and, and, and go to that school because you're already enrolled and there's no other place you can go to that hasn't already been in classes, you know, for, for a couple of weeks. But my guess is they would, I think they would move heaven and earth for the most part to get those seniors out to to other schools. Now, it would have to be only seniors, by the way, because of the fact that the NCAA's traditional uh, precedent here is that you basically have to, like, you have to be basically ineligible to play in postseason for the rest of your career. And so the rest of their career would only encompass seniors because I, I don't think there's any scenario in which you could reasonably project, like, Michigan not playing football in 21 due to this. So it, that's that's an important distinction, I think. But but a fun question, nonetheless. Fun question. Um, fortunately, it feels as though we have gone a long way in, 
and, and we're not, you know, spending 30 minutes of time speaking about COVID on this podcast. I will tell you that if you're somebody that wants to look at that and, and wants to have an eye on whether or not Florida State plays football, I would tell you two decent points of data that you can continue to look at is monitor the cases in North Carolina and Virginia. Um, North Carolina has got a little bit more of a disturbing trend when you look at it. Uh, that's obviously going to be very impactful whether or not the ACC can participate in sports in general, uh, but football in particular. And if, if you have, you know, UVA or UNC or Duke uh, make a decision not to participate in athletics, then um, needless to say, those are frequently those that, that steer the ship when it comes to this conference. So if you, if you want a micro uh, review and, and keep an eye out, that's just a couple points of data that I would suggest to you. Absolutely. All right. Uh, last question of the night here, I think, or we have two left? Uh, we've got Christian, and then we have the remainder of a question that we didn't get to in full uh, last time. So, oh, that was a big hit last week. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Christian asked more of a future question than uh, a current roster, but uh, what are Altmeyer's strengths? We're talking about the uh, four-star committed prospect here. What are Altmeyer's strengths and weaknesses, and how do they fit into a Norvell offense? Also curious how strong that commitment is and which other QBs Florida State will be going after in this class. Sure. So, Christian, we really appreciate the question there. And uh, so with Altmeyer, he's got a, a, a decent build. He's not a huge guy, right? He's not going to blow you away with his size. He's a listed 6'2", 190. I have not seen him in person. So I want to make that clear. My evaluation is basically only on my scouting notes and watching his huddle. And, and some full games. First thing that I think you'll notice if, if you sit down and watch him is, is that he manages a game pretty well and he, he seems like he's in control. He's one of these guys, he doesn't seem like the game is moving too fast for him. Uh, he's highly productive as well and that's not really a scouting trait, but I, I think it's something important to note because we are noticing that high school stats seem to be translating more to the college game for quarterbacks than they, ha- than, than they have in the past. Uh, and so, I mean, like you take a guy maybe like a, a DeAndre or, you know, somebody like that from, from a prior year. And you're like, Ooh, that's like that. That's probably more of a red flag than we realize at the time. But part of that's just, you know, coaches oftentimes think that they can take a talented guy and coach accuracy into him, coach, you know, footwork into him, coach and, and change up his delivery. And ultimately I, I think these coaches are, are way too cocky on that kind of stuff, to be honest. I think that we've actually seen that in Tallahassee prior and at other places as well, to where they take this guy like, oh, he's got a huge arm. He just, you know, he's a 48% high school passer, but, but we're going to overlook that. You know, Altmaier is, is above a 60% passer. Last year, 251 for 374. Had about 3,100 yards. So, you know, maybe, maybe not quite as many yards per attempt as you'd like at the high school level. But then again, you know, very productive as far as touchdown interception, um, 37 to 5. He's got decent athleticism on him. He's not like the most athletic kid in the world, uh, but he did run a, a 4.7440 at a Nike opening last March. So not, not like two months ago, but 14 months ago. That's pretty impressive. 4.28 is also uh, pretty nice in the shuttle for, for a guy entering his junior year. Uh, 31 and a half inch vert, again, pretty solid. He, last year, so last March, 14 months ago, uh, 6.1 165. Again, now he's listed 6'2", 190. I guess it's possibly put on 25 pounds in 14 months. I Maybe a little skeptical of that, but it, again, these are growing kids. Now, as to the physical traits, right? 
He's more athletic, I think, than he shows on film, or at least his testing numbers. To, to me, I don't see the testing numbers on film the same way. I'm not saying he's a slug. I think he's pretty athletic. But like 474 at Nike is a pretty good time. And 428 shuttle is, is, is also a very nice time for QB. I don't see him out there making a ton of highlight runs, but he does have the ability uh, to, to escape some. But most of his game, it looks like, comes from being an accurate passer, getting the ball out on time. He's somebody I, I could see working the RPO game very well. He seems to protect the football for the most part. He throws a nice catchable ball. What do I not see? I, I don't really see a whole lot of throws with, with a ton of zip on him. I, I, I don't know if he has the most elite arm in the nation. You know, I also don't know. Like, again, I haven't seen this kid. I, I with, with that frame, might he be a little bit topped out physically? Who knows? The weight gain, allegedly, if he's 190 now, really, then who, that's possible that may, maybe he has even more growing uh, to do. I know that the other two services seem to be a lot more uh, or a lot higher on Altmire than, than 24-7 is at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, we really haven't done any changes to the offensive ratings, uh, it, especially not in mass since March. And that was only based on kids that we had seen in updated camps because then we had our, our 2022 ratings. And then last month in May, we had our defensive ratings. And now uh, in, in June, we'll be coming out with our offensive ratings. We've not done quarterbacks yet. So I look forward to, to talking to some more people in our network who have seen Altmire in person. But look, a guy with good athleticism seems to be able to diagnose a defense fairly quickly and, and get the ball out to his receivers. The release, I, I think some of these clips, the release looks pretty snappy, which, which I like. Gets the ball in stride, and there's a lot to work with here. I, I think Florida State fans should be pretty excited about what they're getting in Altmire. As far as the solidness of his commitment, FSU doesn't really seem to be pursuing any other 2021 quarterbacks at this moment. So I, I think they're pretty locked in on each other. And this is probably where Norvell, having a reputation of, of being a good offensive guy, uh, makes a lot of sense. He's also somebody who offered Altmeyer early. I think if you're Altmeyer, that offers you some assurance that, hey, I really fit Coach Mike Norvell's system. Like I'm, I'm kind of handpicked for it. It makes a lot of sense to me uh, to why I should go there. So I, I think he's pretty solidly committed. I haven't heard anything different. Um, I mean, I'm sure that the Mississippi schools will certainly try. I, I actually think he'd be a great fit at Mississippi State's offense too, just given, given the, the nature of the, of the quick release needed in the air raid. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, that that's one of the, one of the major bright spots in Florida state's class. All right, bud. We will end on uh, a continuation of a question asked from us last week. Uh, Chris asked, uh, could you give some Louisiana hot sauce takes about the 2011, 2012 recruiting class that led to Florida state's national title asking at the time to please spin us some happy stories as we need it right now. Again, just a little bit of a Nolcast moments uh, idea that Bud and I are going to start to roll out. It'll just be kind of shorter pods, not necessarily dedicated to current events or roster, but looking back at impactful moments uh, in the Florida State program over the last maybe 20 years or so. Um, so the 2012 class, we will pull up real quickly. Uh, Chris is very correct in saying that it was instrumental in leading to Florida State's national championship. And I will say that like when we talked about the 2011 class, a lot of guys like James Wilder Jr. and significant in-state prospects that were signed, Timmy Jernigan, that, uh, that Florida State wasn't signing in the past three or four years. And so I think a real message was sent in-state and, and kind of in the region 
And in my opinion, 2012 was the national message. Florida State's here. Florida State's going to recruit uh, some of the top prospects in the country. Florida State's going to go into places like Texas, going to go into D.C., going to go into Alabama and sign the number one prospect and go into Maryland with, uh, with Darby and sign the number one prospect at the position. Uh, it, was, it was the high watermark of Florida State's recruiting uh, under Jimbo Fisher, both in recruiting class in general and ultimately what they got out of the class and the production on the field. So, but I'm going to break a lot of rules here and that I'm going to communicate on a podcast that's listened to a lot of people and two people are going to uh, be able to take in what I am looking at, but I broke out the old Maple Street Press that you may remember. Nice. And nice. I authored a article in that, uh, it was 2011, actually looking at what the 2012 class could be and uh, what could possibly be taken from that if they were to sign such prospects as Jameis Winston. So I'm going to go through the old down-home recruiting that was authored by one Ingram Smith uh, somewhere in the summer of 2011. So... We will look at Mario Edwards, first of all. Mario Edwards, uh, number two player nationally, number one player in this position, number one player in the state of Texas. Just a massive get. Obviously, they were familiar or fortunate in the fact that his father played at Florida State, but that did not uh, mean this was a a slam dunk by any means. Ultimately, uh, pretty sure Edwards was a national signing day decision, and it was, like I said, uh, between Goldman, Darby, and Edwards all signing on national signing day, uh, I think this is the year, in this the year that uh, ESPN had the graphic uh, SEC in large caps. Basically, the message read second to none, but yep. it was uh, SEC capped. Florida State was the number one recruiting class in the country, and uh, that was very true. And it was because of what they did on National Signing Day. And Edwards, massive prospect, dealt with some weight issues, not necessarily, was necessarily the most motivated kid throughout all the time at Florida State, but exceptionally talented. You know, I'll, I'll cut him some slack. When you're that talented and you're playing against college ball and you know your position and going anywhere, that's probably a little bit of a challenge to stay at the top of your game. Uh, Edwards was a very productive player and, and obviously lived up. Uh, you know, maybe not the – if you expected him to be a, a Jadavian Clowney or something like that, that's not what you got. But uh, what Florida State wanted out of him and what you got on the field was, was pretty close to meeting all expectations from all parties involved. Yeah, I, I think my overall takeaway from this cal- this class is that just the, the talent level was so good that it was able to overcome a lot of like character and bad teammate issues up and down this thing. I mean, like, look at these guys. I'm just I'm counting this up. Like guys who ended up being like either college or NFL arrests. Like half of these dudes almost. Yeah. I, I think it's also that you signed enough uh, high quality kids in 2010 and 2011 to yeah. keep this, this class together. Uh, and, uh, and that's why 2014 turned into the frustrating situation that it was, is that you still had the exceptional talent, uh, but I'm not sure you had some of the glue there that was present in, in years previous. I'm not sure how much these guys cared about college football. I'm not really sure how much these guys cared about Florida state or, or about like winning at Florida state. Now, some of them did for sure. Right. But a lot of these guys were very sort of three into the pros look. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're able to get them to stay focused. And they want a title with these guys in year two of these guys. Now, in year three of these guys, when a lot of those 2010 and 2011 guys were gone and these dudes were called upon to be the leaders, it just didn't happen. Now, part of that was coaching and, and, and you know, sort of sleep at the wheel type stuff, early signs that uh, you know, we, we certainly missed at the time. You know, a year later, we weren't missing on it. 
Eddie Goldman, uh, you know what stands out to me about Eddie is like everybody just sees, you know, big defensive tackle, violent hands, uh, really cerebral guy. Just you talk to him, really sharp dude. I, I think he could be like a commentator once he retires from the NFL. I think he's still starting in the, in the NFL. I mean, really good slayer. He and his dad, uh, he would tell me that like his dad would sit him down and they would watch like famous defensive linemen, not because like, hey, this dude's awesome, but like, let's look at at what this guy does, right? And he, he was talking about like Reggie, Reggie White's hump move and, and all that kind of pretty cool stuff. Um, and, and he was talking, I think it was Deacon Jones he brought up to me. And I was like, how the hell do you know about Deacon Jones? Because like Deacon Jones was retired like 30 or 40 years before I was born. Obviously, Jameis uh, ended up having a really nice career. Jameis's recruitment was very interesting because you know, there was some question like how good of a baseball prospect was, was it going to end up being? He obviously threw through 90s. There's always some uncertainty there because it's just hard to scout another sport. You also had the issue of like the type of quarterback that Bama had been recruiting, not necessarily uh, you know Jameis prototype there. And Auburn at the time really wasn't in like super contention. And then, but they, but they just had cam and like, did Jameis fit that offense? Cause obviously they, they, they ran the heck out of cam. Ultimately that, that kind of fell into their lap and they did a hell of a job recruiting it. Like both they, they, and, and you had to, to go. They, like, let, had, they let the dogs loose on this commitment. And I don't mean necessarily financially. I don't know if Jameis was a, I'm sure, I hope Jameis received some. <laughs> Jameis certainly contributed a lot financially to Florida State. So whether his family or not got paid, I, I, when I sit here and tell the listeners, I don't know that. I'm being dead serious. But this is as aggressive as Florida State was on the recruiting trail, negative recruiting a school that I can remember. And I don't know if it's appropriate for us to go into all the details of it, but uh, Florida State went after it. And then they put, they put Damian Craig and everybody else on it and did everything possible uh, to get this kid, and and for obviously in retrospect, good reason. I think you you said it perfectly there. Ronald Darby, a guy they went out and 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 they won a recruitment for in the D.C. area. If if this happens today, this recruitment, Darby probably goes to Ohio State or Penn State. But there was no Urban Meyer at Ohio State in twenty twelve. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or Alabama. Exactly. Alabama has has found a presence in this area of the country that uh, that's going to be tough to shake. Yeah. Exactly. I'm trying to remember who Darby's finalists were. It might have been, I think Auburn was one, Florida State was one. I don't know if Bama was in on Darby that much, but you're right. They 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 really do a good job there. Just a, a freakishly fast kid, and, and they were able to to get in on him and get him. Chris Casher, uh, I think the stuff I remember about Casher was obviously the transfer, right? Because they had to get him eligible, and so he transferred to Davidson, which was a shall we say very friendly school. For, for those purposes, uh, due to some connections in the area. And Casher, ultimately, I think it's fair to say he was probably a bust, right? I mean, like... I did not remember him being a five-star prospect. I, I didn't. I, I knew he was a highly recruited kid and that, again, Damian Craig put a lot of effort into getting him. I didn't remember him as a five-star prospect. Still playing pro ball, I'm sure, I think, uh, in Canada or something like that. So he's receiving a paycheck for playing for somebody and good for him for that. Uh, number three at the position nationally, never, never translated on the field. Kind of some some focus issues there, uh, to be sure. Mario Pender is a kid we talked a lot about at the time, and the staff sort of made a calculated gamble on him. I mean, he was freakishly talented. Go back and watch that Syracuse game mm-hmm. before he gets hurt, and he's looking basically every bit as impressive as Dalvin Cook is looking against Syracuse. Uh, and then he gets hurt, and then he gets Wally Pipped. 
uh, and then he gets popped a couple other times for you know criminal stuff. And that was a continuation of what he did in high school. He just you know, he just couldn't stay out of trouble, man. That was always a problem there in high school that they went ahead and rolled the dice on that, thinking that they could you know their, their culture was good enough to uh, to overcome that. And ultimately, in the long term, that, that that was not true. I think in the short term, yes, it was. But in, in the long term, you know, for twenty for twenty thirteen season, yeah, it was it was fine. Long term, not so much. Ukime Alegwe, another guy who got kicked out of school. Yeah. Really athletic dude. I think he's in the league still. Isn't he? Yeah, what he went what to Georgia been State on this one. He went to Georgia Southern for a while. Uh, still in the league. Really good player. Florida State could have used him at linebacker for a long time. That that was a disappointing one. Kid out of Stone Mountain here. Uh, good prospect and uh, a, a bigger loss than maybe was uh, was realized. PJ Williams. You look uh, not a name we're going to have to explain to a whole lot of our listenership. Uh, number nine rated cornerback in the country coming out of uh, Ocala. Good prospect. Another guy who's probably, uh, you know, level focus waned uh, a little bit at the end there, uh, but a, a good player still getting a paycheck and, um, you know, contributed a lot and was, a you know, somebody that came in and, and started contributing pretty early. The, the one I remember about this is just like when he was a sophomore, I think like 2010, Mark Stoops just being all over him like, like, like you are in your high school crush, right? Just like constantly like hovering around, standing around him. Uh, you know, just, and, and Florida State had to work hard for that one initially. And then by, by the time he got to his senior year, he was, he was one of their first kids who had committed to them and ended up being like, he was listed as a safety actually coming out of, of high school and ended up being a corner. Typically you don't see that. You don't see a lot of guys listed as safety who end up being a corner, but there were some concerns about his long speed. He overcame those concerns in college at least. Um, and yeah, you know, continues to, to draw a paycheck in the league. I think another guy who ended up getting, uh, couple uh, arrests, right? I, I think. So it's a weird theme to this class. Like there seems to be a change in, in attitude and, and character a little bit in, in, in this class for some reason. Marvin Bracey is a guy who basically just didn't love football. He was one of the fastest humans in the world. And after about, was it a year or two? I think he left to go focus on his track career, which I mean, is not really a bust. Like, okay, you're not going to say, say no to a guy with, with those kind of wheels, but but he, he definitely wasn't somebody who loved football in the way that some other guys did. Justin Shanks, you know, a top 150 defensive tackle, or a top 150 player, I mean, top 15 defensive tackle, just really had weight issues throughout his career, could, could never get down to a weight to where he was able to, to be a productive and useful player. So, I mean, really nice guy, got his degree, but um, you know, wasn't able to really help them. Christo Cordzitis, they go out to Orange Lutheran and he ends up getting hurt and then transferring home, tied in out of there. But another, you know, top 250 kid, uh, Colin Blake. Th- this was always kind of a weird one. I had never seen Colin Blake in person. They seemed to like him. I, I think that they that he had some testing numbers that they really liked. He was a you know, top 325 kid in the country out of San Antonio corner. And they ended up taking him. And it was just I don't know. Lived I mean, we, in England until I think a sophomore year of high school, if I remember, or something like that. That's right. I mean, it was there were some unique situations here. Um, some kind of hilarious recruiting coverage of his commitment that is ten years ago, and I don't need to drag back up. But uh, yeah, Blake was a, a really interesting situation. Where uh, you're right, there was some, there was a, a very you know rawness when it came to the sport, uh, but they they saw uh, a ceiling there, took a shot at it. Ultimately, it didn't work out. But he was a I mean, I see why he's a 
six two and a half, six three corner. There were a lot of really intriguing things about him. It just never materialized. Yeah, they're they're clearly shooting for upside at this point. And they're just they're they're trying to shoot the moon. Like their belief in, in their development capability. You can see we talked about this at the time. By the way, we're like, eh, I don't know if they're balancing their ceiling and their floor well enough on, on some of these guys. Now this, this is studs, no doubt. But like we 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 were saying at the time, we got a lot of shit for this. Their hit rate's probably not sustainable long term. We weren't saying the whole lot in 2011, obviously, but you know, a- after this class, I think is really when it sort of showed up. Reggie Northrop obviously was a fairly productive player at times, a, not a guy who turned into a superstar, uh, but but somebody who um, who they fought. I think they fought Miami for his commitment and it ended up winning. Um, Minlik Watson. Here's an important point about this class: we're down, we're almost out of the four stars, and yet we don't have any offensive linemen mentioned at all yet. You know, and remember last year's class, the 2011 class we were talking about, again, like all your linemen were not blue chip type kids. They're, they're not landing big time offensive linemen. They're landing a lot of project types, which just, the thing is, if you're landing project types and the rest of your, Roger, or the rest of your roster, you're, you're also doing that. Okay, makes sense. Sure, that, that's probably commiserate with your recruiting ability. However, if you're only taking prospects and, you know, like reaches, and that's like, and you're, you're landing like the number one player in the country at other spots. That's probably a bit of a concern. Um, so they land Minlik Watson, he turns out to be a stud. They land Daniel Glauser, um, who ends up not really doing a whole lot in, in his career, but you know, he got hurt. He was a backup to, to Watson. No, no real shame in that. He played some. No um, shame there. We talked about uh, how the coaches were like intoxicated in love with Ferenkrug uh, in practice. Yeah. It got the same call about Glosser. I mean, they, they thought this kid was going to be something. I remember they were fascinated by Farron Krug's bend and his ability to snap with ankles on the ground. And Glosser supposedly had the heaviest hands that Rick Trickett had ever seen. And, and Trickett thought that both of those guys were going to be, you know, absolute players. And uh, needless to say, it, it never, uh, never found itself to be the case on the field. All right. So Sean McGuire, you know, pretty solid career backup that they pluck out of New Jersey. He stays committed to them because he committed before Jameis. I believe, right? And he stays committed uh, even after Jameis committed. Ends up winning a pretty important game for them in 2014 when uh, when Jameis gets suspended for cursing in the union, which, by the way, how crazy is that you suspended somebody for cursing, but that was the that was bowing to the media pressure of those those national outlets at the time. Uh, he ends up winning that game when Debo Swinney Famously plays who instead of instead of Deshaun Watson for mi- for way too many drives. Uh, Dabo Sweeney in. Do you remember who it is? I don't remember the kid. Uh, it will, Cole. No, uh, damn. It, Rector is that his Cole name? Stout? Stout. That's right. That's right. Terrible. Sweeney went a long way in hand in Florida State wins in Tallahassee in 2012 and 2014, and it was it was bizarre. Uh, but yeah, this is the Eddie Goldman game. This is the. Sean McGuire, you know, losing his mind, watching the big screen, realizing that they just fumbled and got the ball back. This is a, a great memory for a lot of Florida State fans. And, yeah, McGuire is exactly what you wanted. You wanted a backup quarterback, uh, a real good camp performance. If I remember correctly, uh, good on the whiteboard, impressed Jimbo, and uh, ultimately I think is working with Jimbo out in, uh, out in Aggieland right now, uh, if, I, if I remember seeing that. So, Roberto yeah. Aguayo, number three kicker. Probably the single most impressive season of a kicker I've ever seen. Uh, tailed off a little bit at the end of his career, but uh, an exceptional kicker. Um, good player. Fell on his face in the pros, but that done not the conversation that we're here to have tonight. Nice player. Case and Beatty's the final prospect to, uh, who actually made it to Tallahassee. Uh, punter out of the Charlotte area. 
good punter, not great. Uh, yeah, always a good sign if the fan base's greatest frustration is with a punter. Uh, and for a while it was with Beatty. That generally lets you know that things are going well otherwise. Um, so solid prospect, performed well. He's a punter. I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say. Yeah, I mean, like pretty underwhelming the first two years, and then, then he ended up having a, a very solid year, mm-hmm. largely out of nowhere. Uh, and so that was, that was good yeah. to see. He'd get the um, old sarcastic applause by the end of his career. Once he started to actually uh, kick at a higher level, his first couple of punts were – you know, where people were like, hey, look at that. Actually made it 40 yards down the field. Absolutely. So ultimately, the, the, the top end of the 2012 class just were dudes who we knew were studs who ended up becoming studs almost to a man. I mean, Casher, Pender, Iligwe were, were, were busts. But I mean, the, the, just the, the quality of the hit with Edwards, Goldman, Winston, Darby, uh, and Williams, you know, that was, that was very impressive. Like the, the, those guys were just, this is basically like a stars and scrubs class, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like find me the dudes in this class who had solid but unspectacular careers. You really can't, man. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were either for the most part bus bench warmers or just freakazoid studs who ended up going. Northrop's probably the only person that falls in that category in the yeah. entirety of the class, uh, which is not normal. Yeah, it's just wild. And, and like I said at the beginning, uh, 2011 was about doing big things in the state and kind of your recruiting traditional, your traditional recruiting area. 2012 was about going out, getting the best players in the country. And to an extent, I think that lends itself to big time boomer bust. You know, that, that lends itself to kids who are coming with a three-year mentality who are coming, get to Sundays. And uh, that's exactly what happened for him. And for Florida state, it, it meant putting the final crystal ball ever uh, offered out there in, in their trophy cabinet. So, uh, you know, didn't, didn't necessarily work out great in 2014 and some of the culture issues that to an extent still bother this program are, in my opinion, tied to this class. When you, when you win, a, flags fly forever. And uh, we're not going not gonna to sit here and uh, I think badmouth a whole lot of the actions that ultimately led to the 2013 National Championship. Absolutely. All right, buddy. Really enjoyed us. If you guys like the show, patreon.com slash nolcast, twitter.com slash nolcast, nolcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've had some great questions recently. It's helped us get through this difficult offseason. And we've also appreciate Florida State taking some commitments recently. So we have some stuff to talk about, which is pretty cool. And we really thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you again uh, very soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith. Music by Judson Wright and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.